If you haven't already, take your Bibles out and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We also have those journals on the book of Acts that many of you have taken from the back, and there are still others if you want one after service. We've titled this this series, a verse-by-verse series in the book of Acts, Life in the Spirit, mainly because we see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Last week we talked about the three relationships that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. First of all, He is with us. The Spirit is with us when we are convicted of our need to be born again. That is the conviction of our sins. There are several passages I could bring up, but one that is common is John 16, verse 8. And when He comes, He meaning the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then secondly, he comes not only with us, outside of us, to convict us of sin, but he comes into us the moment we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. So not only does he provide conviction of our sins when we are lost, but when we are saved, he's the one who does the saving, the regenerating of our spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who does that. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells, there it is, with you, and will be, future tense, in you. He is with us, para in the Greek, and he is in us, another preposition. When did this happen? When did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit in them? Well, in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to the disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, here it is, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so there's a third work also, not only to convict us when we're lost, but then to we receive the, whole, we receive the work of Christ on the cross by the Spirit and are regenerated. He comes into us. But thirdly, He comes upon us when He empowers us to be witnesses. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit for service. For good works which God prepared beforehand. In Acts 1.8 it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. Here it is, the Greek preposition, ippi. It's he comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Today what I want to do, and I'm going to shorten this message. I was hoping to work through uh, Peter's sermon that he preached. I don't think we'll get there. I think we'll spend one more week here today, most of our time, because we're limited in time. I want to spend that time on the Holy Spirit, teaching a little more about the Holy Spirit. I don't think we can ever have too much teaching on the work of the Spirit. He is the one of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, who literally is in us and with us and is what makes the church work. He, he, he is the one who brings it about, and he brings our attention back to God the Father, back to Christ the Son. So if we look, let's look if we can this morning at the sequence of events that take place on the day of Pentecost. Bruce just read for us that experience, that narrative. Let me give it to you. First of all, if you want to write these down, number one, that, that day of Pentecost was preceded by 10 days of worship and prayer. It's 50 days between the first fruits, which is the end of of Passover, and Pentecost. And those 40 of those 50 days, Jesus walked among the disciples and others after after his resurrection. And then on the 40th day, he was ascended into heaven. That leaves 10 more days before the day of Pentecost. And so what we find here, the last two verses in Luke's gospel, give us what was happening, what was transpiring in the lives of the followers of Jesus right up to the time from his ascension to the day of Pentecost. 
And we see in Luke 24, 52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They, so Jesus just ascended, they worshiped him, and then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. That's the end of the book of the Gospel of Luke. So the, the followers of Christ, the first thing they do is they worship him as he's ascending, and then they return to Jerusalem and they begin to bless uh, him in the temple. Now, this is the first meeting place of the church. Uh, there were rooms that are around the porticos, the openings, the entries into the temple. And so in this outer court, there were these available rooms, and that's kind of where they were meeting for those 10 days. But they also met in the upper room, the disciples. In fact, Acts chapter 1, verse 12, turn there. You should be in Acts chapter 2. Go back one chapter, verse 12. Because immediately following the ascension that Jesus had on the Mount of Olives, they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now that's interesting. You can actually see the city from the Mount of Olives. It's only 200 feet higher than the highest point on the Temple Mount. And you have to go down into the Kidron Valley, cross it and come up, and you are there at the temple. So uh, it's not very far away. It's just a few minutes walk from the Olive, Mount of Olivet to uh, Jerusalem. And it says here, uh, a Sabbath day's journey away. What, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, when God had his people set up uh, their tents around the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, they would do it in a circular fashion. The tents that were farthest from the tabernacle would have been called a Sabbath day's journey. On the Sabbath, you're not to work. You're not to work up a sweat. You're not to do anything on the Sabbath. And so they called the distance between the last uh, tents and the tabernacle a Sabbath day's journey. You are allowed to walk from your house to the temple. And in the New Testament, they would say the Sabbath day's journey, the same distance. It's not very far at all. And, and when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. This is likely the same upper room that Jesus had that he instituted the Lord's Supper in with his disciples. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So these disciples would gather together, these 11, up in the upper room. And what were they doing for these 10 days? Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So for those 10 days, the followers of Christ, after his ascension, they gathered together in the day at the temple to worship God, Jesus Christ. And then they would go in the evenings and they would gather in the upper room for prayer. They spent their time in prayer. They were all in one accord. By the way, this is the last time in the Bible that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned. This is it. And it's, she's simply one of the gatherers, the followers of Jesus. And so they were in one accord, it says. That means that they were praying united. They prayed with one mind and one purpose. Jesus told them that they were going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit and it would enable them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. The question that we have, we talked about last week, what would you do if you knew you were part of that group that was with Jesus, he ascends to heaven, he told you that the Spirit's coming, and this church is going to be launched? And I'm afraid that some of us, when our business minds would begin to lay out the legwork, you know, the organizational plan. Let's strategize and let's structure for this new church that's going to start. Let's get busy on this. Let's lay the plans. Well, that's not what they did. They did not go business-minded. <laughs> they went spiritual. They simply prayed. 
and they prayed in such a way that their hearts and their minds could have one purpose. They prayed, this group of 120 people, they prayed as one. They prayed. They prayed with perseverance. It says they, that they worshiped and prayed continually. So there was not this, this, okay, for a few hours, let's pray, and then tomorrow, let's go to the market, and let's have some fun, and let's do this and that, and wait until the Spirit. No, no. Every day, they returned, and they prayed. There was this continual perseverance of the saints before Jesus allows the Spirit to come. And so that's the first thing we see. It was preceded. The, the, the day of Pentecost is preceded by 10 days of worship and prayer. Worship and prayer should be the foundation of the church today. Amen? Really, honestly, that's why we gather. We gather to worship the Lord. We don't come to just see people, to hear a sermon, you know, go to our favorite church to hear our favorite preacher. No, we come to church for the Lord, for Jesus. He's the one that draws us together. And when we come in, we come with a desire to be one, of one mind, of one heart, of one purpose. That's why we've come. So that's the first thing that happens. And then secondly, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came upon them in these three phenomenon, and I want you to see those again. First of all, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, the passage Luke records. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. Right next to that on number one, write power. Just write power. You see, verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So whether they were at Solomon's colonnade or whether they were up in the upper room, wherever they were in this house, in this place, this sound of this mighty rushing wind filled the entire place. This is evidence. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon them to make them witnesses for Jesus Christ to launch the church, the New Testament church. And he's coming with power. That's what a mighty wind sounds like. We've all lived in Florida, at least most of us, for a good amount of time, and we've gone through a hurricane or two. And that's the thing. When it's a high-caliber hurricane, that wind is powerful. You can hear it. It shakes the walls. It can do all kinds of things. It can destroy lives because of its power. The Holy Spirit, he's the one who provides the dunamis, the witness, the martus, that we would be witnesses. He gives us power, boldness to speak the word of God. That's what he came with. He came with power. It wasn't a mighty rushing wind that filled this room. Don't get the picture in your mind that somehow there was a, a you know, this, this tornado happening inside the room. It says it's like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a wind, but it is power. And that's what they experienced. Number two, uh, the Spirit came with these three phenomenon. On the day of Pentecost, first, to sound like a mighty rushing wind. Secondly, divided tongues as of fire appeared. Okay, and, and divided tongues, it says, look, here it is, as of. It's not that it was actual fire. It was not actual tongues on fire. It was like, it was as of tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So it comes down, the Holy Spirit comes upon in this as tongues of fire, and then all of a sudden these tongues divide out from this one central and they fall upon every individual, a tongue on everyone in the room. It becomes now, it goes from, from collective, it goes to individual. It goes from objective to subjective. Now it's on each person. The Spirit of God comes. What does it represent? If it's not actual tongues of fire, what does it represent? Well, we know that in the Scripture, <coughs> excuse me, fire speaks of purity. 
the refiner's fire. It's a purifying. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's coming for a purpose, and that is to do the work of God through God's people. But before he can use us, he's got to do something to us. He purifies us. He cleanses us. He prepares us for the work that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in. And so that's what we see here. The Spirit of God comes in purity. The work of the Spirit is a purifying work first. Before it's a work from us to others, emboldening us to preach, first God does a work in us. What kind of a message do you have if your life is completely different than the life of a believer? You have no message. You can say the right things, but if you're living a different life, that's a lie. And no one's going to believe. You have no credibility. So God has to do something in us in order for us to have a message for others. And, and then number three, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. So everybody in the room, not just a few, not just the disciples, everyone in the room was filled with the Holy Spirit and all of them began to speak in other tongues. Write the word next to that, universal, universal. In verse 4 it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit is in control. The Spirit is speaking through them. This is not something that they are manifesting out of their own ability. This is not a flesh-driven phenomenon. This is a Spirit-driven phenomenon. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Spirit's work is a universal work. The Spirit does do a work individually, but here He has assembled all these people who are different, who are unique, and yet the same Spirit gives all of them, gives all of them this, this sense of belonging, of mission, of work on that day. The Spirit's work is universal in God's church. He doesn't leave anybody out. When you are saved, the Spirit comes in you. And then there are these moments of infilling. This infilling of the Spirit is a repeated reality of Spirit-controlled behavior that God commands believers to keep up with, to maintain. Peter and many others were filled with the Spirit again and again, and they spoke boldly the Word of God. Every time they were filled, they spoke more boldly. But the fullness of the Spirit affects all areas of life, not just speaking boldly. And every day, the Spirit of God who is in us wants to fill us fresh to the point of overflow so that it's not just Him filling us for the purpose of spiritual growth and maturity, but it, it ends up overflowing us into the lives of people that we are with. That's why we should be in the Word of God on a daily basis. That's why you ought to be listening to good Bible teaching through the week. That's why you should pray. You should spend time in prayer. That's why you worship God in song. Why? Because I'm being filled up. And then as it flows out of me, others get the benefit of that. They just get the benefit. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's how we witness to people every day. That's how. It comes out of an overflowing of our lives. But that infilling takes place, and here it took place, and they began to speak as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, verse 5. Now, there, was, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So, in Jerusalem, during the uh, Passover and Pentecost, you have all of these Jews that live in other nations that have come together. So now Jerusalem is a metropolitan area. It's international. Jews from everywhere. Hebrew males who made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would make it at least once a year and as often as three times a year. They would come for Passover, they would come for Pentecost, and they would come in the fall for the Feast of Tabernacle. And they would gather from all nations in Jerusalem. And this is one of those experiences. Hebrew males who made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They were expected to celebrate these, these wonderful feasts of the Jews. 
Verse 6, and at this, at this sound, at this sound, at what sound? At these voices of believers who are now by the Holy Spirit speaking in these other tongues. They, they hear this sound, the multitude came together. Now it's attracting people. This is why what happened on the day of Pentecost is different from every other time that you see the Spirit manifest using tongues in the New Testament. This was a one-time unique experience where all these had gathered, and he brought them together, and then they speak in tongues, and all the people who were in the city for Passover and for the, now the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, they, now all of them are hearing these, these men. And it gathered, it, the crowd gathers. Each man in the crowd heard the language of his own native dialect or his own native language. And that was astonishing to them. In fact, it says so in the next verse. Look, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't these the guys who they're from that rural area up north around the Sea of Galilee? Listen, the Galileans would have been like the southern hicks. You know how the dialect is, dialect is so different from anywhere else in the country. How y'all doing? You know, and just all that, okay? That would have been like the difference with the Galileans from the Jews in the south, in Judea, and other parts of the world. It was that weird. But they're hearing their own native languages out of these old hick Galileans, a bunch of fishermen. Now tell me that isn't awesome that God uses anybody he chooses to use to put forth his message. He could have chosen kings. He could have chosen important people, you know. Who'd he choose? A bunch of hicks. Hey, there's hope for you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, Galilean Jews spoke with a distinct regional accent, and they were considered to be this unsophisticated, uneducated you know, group of folks, when Galileans were seen to be speaking so many languages, these Judean Jews were amazed. They were astonished. And verse 8, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So the Galileans were not speaking gibberish. They were not speaking what some would call a heavenly language. They were actually speaking in human languages. This is not a situation where you have a gift of tongues and it needs to be interpreted. It's already in a language that the people who are now gathered and listening to can understand. Listen, let me get it for you. Please see this. This is an international crowd that has gathered and are hearing the believers speak with native language. Let me say it even more plainly. This is an international crowd of sophisticates, people who can travel long distances and come to the special parties of the Jews in Jerusalem. They have languages that are far superior, and yet they are hearing these hicks from Galilee speak in their own dialect, in their own language. God is using ordinary people to do extraordinary things for him. No one in this room is extraordinary. I'll, I'll go this far. No one in the world is extraordinary. No one. We're all born through Adam and we've all sinned and we all fall short to the glory of God. That's the bottom line. If you want a little more detail on it, God said, and Marshall quoted part of it, but he says, the, you know, the, the, our, our righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. None of us is special. No human being is extraordinary. You say, oh, but King David, he was amazing. No, he was not. He was an ordinary man who did great things for God because the Holy Spirit came upon him and accomplish those things through David, just like the Spirit of God can come upon every one of you. 
And what the enemy has marked in your life as no good, throw it on the scrap heap, give up. Let's start with somebody. God says, I can use that piece of junk if they'll turn to me and recognize that they are nothing in my sight and they will give me their heart. I can take and rebuild them and I can use them to do great and mighty things. Every one of you in this room that is saved, the Holy Spirit is carrying out the works that God himself prepared beforehand that you would walk in. He saved you, he fills you, and now he wants to overflow you. And that's what we see happening here. So let's look at this. This is very interesting. This is an international crowd. Let me explain what I mean. Verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Those are the residents that live around the Caspian Sea. And then Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. This, this would be both Judea and Asia Minor. It's a whole other region of the world. And then he goes further. Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to proselytes. Or I'm sorry, belonging to Cy, belonging. I'm sorry, I really messed that up. Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. That would be northern Africa. And just north of Africa, another whole area, totally different, total different language, total different dialects. I've got a first cousin who uh, is way up in the French army. My, my uncle uh, married a woman after the war from France, and they had children. And he is a, he's, a, he's a military guy, but he specializes in languages. He can speak, I forget how many languages. And he was telling me one day, he said, Greg, it's amazing. There's a tribal people in Ethiopia, and their language is a clicking with their mouth. They, that's how they communicate. That's their language. Well, we have right here the Holy Spirit using these hicks from Galilee, and probably one of them is going... And these folks are going, how does he know that? Because God can do whatever he wants with whomever he chooses. And then they have visitors from Rome. Now you're going to the far west. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans. Now he's just kind of throwing everybody in. Cretans and Arabians. We hear all these different Men telling them in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now we not only know that these are languages, human languages, but we know what they're speaking in these languages. They're telling of the mighty works of God. They're drawing this huge crowd of international people, Jews, and they're telling them of the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Notice it says perplexed. It doesn't say confused. It doesn't say chaos. It doesn't say they were in disarray. Anytime the Holy Spirit shows up, it is always decent and in order. They heard their languages from these people. It was clear. It was, it was, they were able to understand that it was about the mighty works of God. Nothing here is in confusion. This experience of tongues is very unique. The Holy Spirit of the Bible never brings attention to himself. He's not bringing attention to himself here. He's simply letting them know, I've arrived. And I've arrived for a purpose. Not that you would make me the center of your worship, but that you might know of the mighty works of God. That is one of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit, to point us back to God. Don't ever separate the Trinity. Don't take the Holy Spirit and put him over on your little pedestal because you like all the sensual experiences of church worship and he's the one who does it and I just go after the... No, no. He's here for a purpose. He never brings attention to himself. He never speaks on his own. He only reminds us what Jesus said to us. That's what Jesus said. That's the work of the Spirit, to remind you of everything I've said. He's not coming to tell you something new that I didn't say so that you can follow the Holy Spirit. These three phenomena of the Spirit didn't evoke a loss of control or chaos among the 120. The Spirit of God doesn't work in that way. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, just, or 33, write it down. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If God's in it, it'll be decent, it'll be in order, and there'll be peace. That's God. He's not going to do something that's so chaotic and destructive. It brings, I bring this out because such is not the case in many churches today. In some churches, worship is anything but decent and in order. I, I watched a video this past week. I couldn't believe it. A church in Fort Lauderdale where I'm telling you, every Sunday, they, the light show, the, it's incredible. The lights go out and you just watch the stage. And these people come out in costumes. They, they, they do whole shows. What was it? The, great, the Greatest Showman, the movie, The Greatest Showman? They, they did that in church. They sing secular songs so that people who come in who are not saved will think they're cool. This is awesome. I like this kind of church. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, the Holy Spirit's not in that nonsense. That's not of God. He brings attention to Christ, not to man and man's abilities. These bizarre doctrines and behaviors have become so commonplace in some churches and movements that error is embraced as truth. They don't even have the ability to discern between right and wrong. We don't have the authority to make the Holy Spirit out to be whatever our minds and our emotions conjure him up to be. Look, I can come up with all kinds of ideas that I think are the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make it of the Spirit. It just means that I'm building my own God. When we do this, it's making a mockery of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. In some churches, unbiblical practices like falling backwards on the floor, laughing uncontrollably or squirming on the ground like a wounded snake have become necessary evidences of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I say hogwash to that. Preaching with background music for effect, calling people out to receive the Spirit and then knocking them down like pins in a bowling alley, speaking prophecies over people that only point to greater days ahead, more wealth and prosperity, greater increase in status and recognition. The Old Testament prophets didn't prophesy like that. They prophesied woe unto you. They called out sin. These are not the works of the Spirit. These are manipulative methods of man tickling the ears of those who seek a shallow, sensual experience in their worship of God. It's not biblical, nowhere in the Bible. And it's not spiritual. Yet if you ask someone who has been duped by these sensual practices, they'll tell you that these are clear evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in their church. God help us. God help us. If that's what we think the Holy Spirit is about. Reminds me of the story that Chuck Smith told of a church in Southern California that every year put out this big living Christmas tree. They're the ones that started it, evidently, and they every year would do another one, a bigger one, a bigger one, bigger one. Now it takes the whole stage and half of the front of the church to build their living Christmas tree. And they got together and said, what are we going to do different this year? And they decided we're going to have an angel come out of the ceiling and come and come down and light up on top of the living Christmas tree in the finale, the final song. They had it all arranged. They got some guy who was a brand new believer. They dressed him up like an angel and stuck him on some kind of a pulley system. And that first night, here he comes down on the final song. And he's about to light up the top of the Christmas tree at the pinnacle point in the music. And all of a sudden, there's a jolt in the pulley system, in the rope. And he flails, and now he starts spinning, and he starts moving his legs, and he starts moving out towards the crowd, over the crowd, back towards the out and back. And people in the crowd are, whoa, whoa, and this guy up there is yelling out because he's a new believer, and he hasn't really gotten control over his tongue yet. Get me the blank down from here. Help. Finally, he got so sick spinning and moving 
he puked all over the people in the front of the church. I'm not making this up. This is a true story. May that be the case for any church that tries to manufacture the presence and the work and the worship of God. God help us that we never be like that. That it's about programs and big events and man putting on a show. God help us. You would think looking at some churches that the Holy Spirit is the author of confusion and disorder if you didn't understand what Scripture actually says about his personality and work. Scripture never describes man's experience with the Holy Spirit as a jolt of electricity, a tingling sensation that starts in your feet and moves up your legs and down your arms and into your fingers. There's no scriptural basis for that. There's not a single evidence of such an experience. In fact, what the Scripture does do is warn us that Satan is able to do signs and wonders. The Bible says in the last days, in the end, during the Great Tribulation, many will be led astray because of the works and the wonders that Satan produces through the false prophet. The real Holy Spirit is not an electrifying current or ecstatic energy or some cosmic genie who indiscriminately grants self-centered wishes for health and wealth. The true Spirit of God doesn't cause His people to bark like dogs or laugh like hyena. He doesn't knock people backwards to the ground in an unconscious stupor or use false prophets to speak sensual imaginations over people. These fleshly and demonic works are going to go down when God comes. But I'm telling you, tens of thousands of people are falling prey to this nonsense. They have no spiritual discernment because they've not been taught according to the Word of God. They have a form of doctrine on the Holy Spirit that they have created. It's not in the Bible. The true Spirit of God is, is dishonored. He's quenched. He's misrepresented by these false prophets and teachers. I, I was reading this week, and I just blown away out of these books of these men. One guy who's known as the father of the Word of Faith movement, Kenneth Hagin. He actually says that the spirit of the living God told him to punch a woman in the stomach. I'm not making that up. And that's not an exaggeration of, the, of what he said. Rodney Howard Brown. This guy, he, he came out and said that uh, the Holy Spirit told him to go up to a blind man and slap him on the face. Some guy... I forget his name now, Todd Bentley. He said he was asking God why the Spirit's not moving, and the Spirit said, go over to that, go over to that old woman, and I want you to kick her right in the face with your, with your boot. Now listen, he said, I went over, and I reared back, and I kicked her right in the face with my boot. And here's what he said, just as my boot met her nose, she fell under the power of God. Well, that ain't the power of God, my friend. Because that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't function like that. That is man-made garbage. We need to be careful of that nonsense. Honestly, be careful of that nonsense. The true Spirit of God doesn't cause people to do these things. The fleshly and demonic works of the enemy, they're, they're the, he's the one who's behind it. The true Spirit of God He's not blessed by that. That's dishonoring to him. These people worship an idol of spirit that is the antithesis of the third person of the Trinity. I'm telling you, the work of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of everything that Jesus said. He didn't come to be the center of attention. He's not here to give weak Christians a sensual fix. He doesn't mix spiritual cocktails to give Christians a spiritual high every Sunday. Signs and wonders are for the unbeliever, not believers. If you, want, if you want to look at the Bible and look at the number of times that people were knocked down, 99% of the time it was the unbeliever who was knocked down. Jesus in the garden praying before they haul him off and the, the soldiers show up and Judas and the rest of them, 
and he calls out to them and he said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, here's all he said, I am he. And it says they all fell down. Who fell? The disciples? The followers? No. The unbelievers, the soldiers, the Jewish leaders who came to take Jesus away. We have taken and twisted in the church the work of the Holy Spirit. And God, help us for that. Forgive us for that. See, the Holy Spirit, He purifies us. That's His work. To mature and grow us, to empower us, not for self-serving reasons, but for the witnessing of others, uh, to others about Jesus. He's not the reason we gather. He brings us together and enables us to worship the one true and living God. He's the reason we gather. And then thirdly, Peter delivered the first public sermon. So we go from this 10 days of prayer and worship right into the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And all these folks are gathered and they hear in their own language these men giving, talk, talking of the mighty works of God. And immediately what comes out of their mouth is, what meaneth this? What does all of this mean? That was the purpose of the Spirit coming and manifesting so that those who are un unsaved would be caught by what's happening and, and have to wonder what's going on. And now Peter's able to stand up and he's able to speak about Jesus. And he, <clears throat> he rings the bell and he delivers the mail. Amen. I love that. I would love to go into this message, but I'd like to wait for next Sunday to talk about the first public sermon that was ever preached in the church. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's end it here. Why don't we stop just for a moment and quietly reflect on the work of the Holy Spirit and who he is to us? Who is he to you? Who is he? You have people who take him out of context, they're way over here, and then you've got people who have no clue who he is. He's not part of their life. Well, i got to tell you, if the Holy Spirit's not in your life, you're not saved. And if you tell me you're saved, then you should be able to tell me how the Holy Spirit is working in your life. If you're not in the Word of God, what you're telling me is you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to guide you because... If he's guiding any Christian, he's going to guide you back to the truth. Jesus said that. Take your Bible real quick and turn to John, just closing it out. Look at John chapter 14. In John 14, look what he says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, capital H, the paraclete, to be with you forever. So the Holy Spirit, once he comes to you, he's never going to leave you. Even the spirit of truth, he's the spirit of what? He's the spirit of works, he's the spirit of signs, he's the spirit of, of sensual excitement. No, he's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Look what Jesus says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet <laughs> a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. Because I've been raised from the dead, you're going to be raised from the dead. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. This is about relationship. The Holy Spirit comes to broaden and deepen our relationship with God. That's the subjective work. Look at this in verse 28, or verse 25. <coughs> Excuse me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, <coughs> he will what? Do mighty wonders on Sunday mornings so people can be excited and go back to church and get another fix. Look what it says. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will 
teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. By the way, whom the Father will send in whose name? In the Holy Spirit's name? No, in the name of Jesus. So many, and maybe some of us here, we've made the Holy Spirit to be far more than who He is in the Bible. And the work in the Bible that He is called to do is such a great work, but we haven't even begun to let the Spirit do the work in us. He goes on, he, he, he speaks it again and again and again. He talks about the work of the Spirit. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth, again he repeats it. He's the Spirit of what? Truth. He's about truth. Who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about who? About me. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. He's not supposed to be the centerpiece. Well, the Holy Spirit is not supposed to become an idol to Christians. He's here to, to bring remembrance of everything Jesus said, and he's here to bear witness about Jesus. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, speaking of his disciples. In chapter 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Who sent Jesus to the world? God the Father. Who sent the Holy Spirit to the world? Jesus the Son. And he will convict the world. He's, that's his work, is to bring conviction to the lost. His work is to fill those who believe, who are born again. And then his work is to come upon them, to overflow them, so that the empowerment of the Spirit can enable them not just to be witnesses, but also to be better husbands, better wives, better parents, better employees, better employers. Everything in your life, the Spirit of God, has been sent by Jesus to help you reflect Christ out of those areas of your life. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit, who is it? The Spirit of what? When He comes, He will guide you, listen to this, into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. Who's He listening to? Jesus. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will, look at this, He will glorify me. When someone lifts up the Holy Spirit and makes their life about the Holy Spirit, that is blasphemy. That is quenching the very Holy Spirit that they're worshiping. Because he doesn't bring attention to himself. He, said, he, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Folks, this is what we ought to be praying about. Father, do I really understand the work of the Holy Spirit as according to Scripture? Or have I believed what some man has conjured up that the Spirit is all about? Father, this morning as we as a people, your word, Paul, you told, you told young Timothy when you charged him, you said, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, rebuke, exhort, correct. That's what the Word does. Father, today, may the, may the Holy Spirit do His work in bringing the truth out about His own character, His own nature, His own work in our lives. And Father, forgive us for how we have taken advantage of or taken for granted this marvelous work of the Holy Spirit. For some of us here, we, we don't even think about the work of the Spirit in our life each week. When every morning we wake up, we should give thanks to God for sending His Son to die for us so that we can have reconciliation with the Father. We should thank God for the work of the Son who now brings the ministry 
through the Holy Spirit to us. Thank you, Lord. May we see this the way you see it. May we come out of our stupor. May we come out of our fleshly doctrines. May we come back to the Word of God and may we find peace and rest and may we find order because that's how the Spirit moves. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this work that you're doing in Bureau Bible Fellowship and it's a work that you need to do in, in the pastors, the elders, the leaders, and the people. May this study in the book of Acts, may it correct us, may it, may it align us more with who you are in Scripture and with the work that you have called us to do through the church. May we see church the way you see it. Oh God, may this community be saved because this church takes serious the gospel and we allow the Holy Spirit to embolden us to be witnesses May we see people getting saved from this community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless each of you. Thank you for being here today. This is a, a wonderful day in the Lord. And make sure you reach out. Let me just say this before we pull out. How important it is that we fellowship with one another. That used to be here at the church that people, lion share came 30 minutes early, you know, just to hang out. And with COVID and all that, we took away the food and it kind of just, now we just kind of come in, uh, even sometimes, even after the service. I, I, I wish we would fellowship beforehand, but now that you're here, please, before you walk out, would you take time to love one another, to fellowship? This is part of what fellowship is, encouraging one another, strengthening one another praying with one another. God bless you, church.